TMAZ around the world and thank you for your company once again on truth2u.org that's truth2u.org joining me is the Director of Education and Counselling for Jews for Judaism in Canada the website is jewsforjudaism.ca jewsforjudaism.ca welcome back to the program Rabbi Michael Skoback Shalom Jano and it's so good to be back with you wonderful to have you my friend as we are continuing to investigate the, the alleged 365 messianic prophecies in the Tanakh that Jesus supposedly fulfilled in the New Testament do you know what I guess, what was it? I Maybe the last five weeks, uh, we've been going through the book of Daniel, at least those verses that were cited on the list. We have one more to go before we get out of Daniel, and that is uh, on the original list, number 313. And the new revised standard list is 255. 255, that's correct. The new revised standard version, which was supplied to us by Bill! Of, uh, of course, Carmen's husband, Bill. Thank you, Bill. And uh, their website, what is their website? I don't know. The refinersfire.org, I think that is. So That's thank it. you to them for supplying a, a slightly refined. We think we certainly think we, hey, Bill, you could have done better. We've said it before. I'm going to say it again because, oh, dear, my friend, in this particular episode, we're going to highlight a couple of things. Anyhow, it begins like this. Daniel chapter 10, verse 5 and 6. And 12. Oh, and 12. That's right. I lifted up my eyes and behold a certain man clothed in linen. I like linen. I like, I've got a lot of linen in my closet. Anyway, uh, clothed in linen whose waist was girded with gold of Yupaz. His body was like beryl. His face was like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like torches of fire. His arms and feet like burnished bronze in color. And the sound of his voice was like the multitude, the voice of a multitude. Verse 12. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard and I have come because of your words. Now, the uh, according to the list, corresponding verse in the New Testament is Revelation, of course. Revelation chapter 1, verse 13 to 16. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and hair were like white, or white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like the flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in the furnace, and his voice the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, the the messianic prophecy fulfilled, Michael, uh, according to the list, is that the vision of the Messiah in a glorified state, Michael. Okay, this is uh, this gets a little bit spooky here. Um, well, because first of all, um, you know, when we talk about the book of Revelation, mm. it's not really reporting history so much. It's really more or less a vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and most Christian commentaries understand Revelation to be a vision of what's going to be happening in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, at best, really, I guess what they're saying is that um, because the, the vision that John has in Revelation here of this pretty, you know, unusual looking being has some similarity. There's some, I guess, similarity in appearance. It's not exactly the same description, Um, but a person could certainly mistake one for the other. And I suppose that if the assumption is that John's vision in Revelation is describing uh, Jesus and, uh, and that's the same being that Daniel is referring to, that, uh, that that actually the book of Daniel refers to that Daniel saw in his vision. Mm-hmm. So what they're saying really is that that Daniel predicts uh, the Messiah who will be in a glorified state, and uh, John is seeing that same vision. At the end of the day, I mean, we'll get into whether or not this is really about Jesus, whether it's really a prophecy. But at the end of the day, uh, as far as I understand, it hasn't happened yet. Meaning that this vision of John, he had it, um, but whatever he But it has not come to fruition as yet. Right, it's something that's Therefore, still... Therefore, it's not... If it, even if it is a messianic prophecy, even if we would allow them that, or perhaps, it hasn't happened yet, so what's it doing on the list? Yeah, I would say that this is really uh, problematic. Now, the real issue, I, that was just uh, you know playing the game according to their um, mm. supposition, but the real issue is, is this passage in Daniel a messianic prophecy? Now, mm. no Jewish commentary uh, or, or Bible scholar or any Jewish reader of Daniel ever 
saw it as a reference to the Messiah. And as a matter of fact, it's not just our blindness or Jewish prejudice. Um, you know, there are many, many Christian commentaries who've read Daniel carefully and don't see it as a prophecy about the Messiah. Um, I have my very handy-dandy, hyperactive, open Bible. Uh, handy-dandy. Well, it, it, you know, it throws out these stars, you know, very, very generously for every mm. passage in the Hebrew Bible that they say is a messianic prophecy, and they really mm. award quite a few of them. Um, they don't give a black pro- messianic prophecy star to this verse. In I Daniel. don't have one on mine either. I, I get the stars as well on my, on my oh. New King James. I don't have a star here either. Okay, and my English, my ESV study Bible, which is actually a very good study Bible, English Standard Version, uh, has a wonderful study Bible. They also don't mm-hmm. see this passage as a messianic prophecy. So it's not just my uh, you know, rabbinic, pharisaic stubbornness that refuses <laughs> to see this as a messianic prophecy. There are plenty of Christians that don't see it as a messianic prophecy. Uh, okay, so again, it's a case of of uh, a common uh, verbiage, common words uh, and themes, and they've gone, there you go, that'll do. Yeah, I, I think that the, the way most people understand the passage in Daniel is that he's having a vision of the angel Gabriel. Uh, mm-hmm. And he sees a- the angel Gabriel in a vision. And you, you have sort of clues to this in chapter 8, verse 16 in Daniel, and in chapter 9, verse 21, where he has prior encounters with uh, w- with Gabriel. He actually has quite a few encounters with Gabriel. He's sort of the most common angel that he sees in this mm-hmm. in his book. And actually, the New American Bible acknowledges that um, that's really who Daniel is seeing in uh, this passage in chapter 10. Um, so I, I think that, you know, we can't, uh, on the basis of Daniel chapter 10, verse 5 to 6, uh, you know, say that is, is there's any clarity that it's talking about Jesus. Fair enough. The next one on the list is, well, it was Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. It says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also on my manservants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The corresponding verse according to the list, uh, of course, Acts chapter 2, uh, verses four, uh, verse 4 and 16 to 18 is what, uh, and 33, look at that. We've got yes. a few, but it's all coming from Acts. And really, I'm, I, I need not read it out. It's just uh, the story of uh, uh, the claim that, that the Holy Spirit uh, fell upon the, the multitude that were there and uh, they began to speak in tongues and so on and so forth. And Peter, I believe, stands up and says, and quotes from Joel and says, this is what was spoken by Joel, and he quotes what I just read. Um, and the, the messianic prophecy fulfilled is promise of the Spirit, according to the list, Michael. So let's just first, uh, for the listeners, point out that you know there are times when the Hebrew Bible, the pageantation, is different than a, uh, a Christian Bible. So here, um, the passages from the book uh, of Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 yes. to 29, in a, in a Jewish Bible, it would be the beginning of chapter 3, chapter 3, verses 1 to 2 just in case someone's trying to find this prophecy and can't find it. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically what it's saying in Joel is that there's going to be a return of the manifestation of prophecy in the Messianic age. So we could say very, very safely that this passage in Joel is a Messianic prophecy and that it's describing something that's going to be taking place during the time of the Messianic age, but it's mm-hmm. not a passage about the person of the Messiah. That's important to point out. Um, and it's speaking about this uh, great and awesome the Lord. That's what Joel mentions here. And we find this also referred to at the end of the book of Malachi, or also mm-hmm. the great and awesome day of the Lord. And that's, yes. it's not talking about a particular 24-hour period of time. It's a period of time. It's an era, an epoch. And it's that time in the future when, as the very end of the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, says, and in that day God will be one and his name will be one. And mm-hmm. as Isaiah says, that the knowledge of God will spread as the waters cover the seas. That's the great expectation, the great hope that we have in the messianic age is that the whole world will turn to God. So mm-hmm. what Joel is saying is that when 
this takes place, there's going to be a return of this uh, ability for people to prophesy. Now, in Jewish history, um, we lost this about 2,400 years ago. Uh, prophecy ceased. There were no more prophets um, after about 2,400 years ago. And what Joel is, is prophesying is that this ability to prophesy, and he speaks here about visions and dreams, etc., because the most prophets, I mean all of them actually, except for Moses, they receive their prophecy in a dream or in a vision. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, the next verses in Joel confirm that this is the messianic age because it speaks about the time of the ingathering of the exiles, etc. Um, now, we don't have prophecy now. It didn't return in the time of Jesus. We have not still yet have any prophets, um, despite the, cra- the the claim of some Christians who give themselves the title of prophet. I actually saw, yes. I saw on Facebook today, one of my friends had a friend on Facebook who was, called himself a prophet. Um, right. or, or charismatics and Pentecostals who claim that they can prophesy. prophesy. Mm. Um, they have the gift mm-hmm. of prophecy. It's not prophecy. I mean, you could, you know, uh, I think Abraham Lincoln was the one that's that that's said once in a trial. He said, "If you if you call the tail of a jackal a leg, how many legs does a jackal have?" And the person said five. And Lincoln said, "No, he only has four legs. Just because you call something a, a, a leg doesn't mean it is a leg. Let's make it so. That's right. So uh, you could call yourself a, pro- a prophet, but you're not a prophet because the Bible again has ways of determining who is a true prophet, who's not a true prophet." And by the way, that determination cannot be made ad hoc by any Joe on the street. It can only be made by the uh, Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, which we don't have now. Um, So we don't have prophets. And um, what's really interesting is that Joel is speaking about the return of the institution of prophecy. He's not speaking about the ability of people to speak in tongues, which is actually the only fulfillment that the list is claiming here. They're claiming that the... Um, experience of Pentecost, where people were able to speak in an unknown and, and uh, foreign tongues, mm. is a fulfillment of this passage in Joel. It has nothing to do with Joel. Joel is speaking about prophecy. Prophecy is where a person actually receives a message from God. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you could speak in uh, strange tongues. As a matter of fact, the speaking in tongues is not just a Christian phenomenon. Many religions actually practice what is called glossolalia, and uh, you know, it's, it's, so it's a spiritual manifestation of many religions, although I've really met with many, many uh, people who were former uh, charismatics or former Pentecostals, mm. and they made it very clear to me that it's not necessarily, or probably rarely is, any kind of spiritual experience. For many people, it's a learned behavior. You know, people have told me that when they went to charismatic congregations, they weren't able to sort of lose their inhibitions and just let go and speak in tongues. And so the Mm. pastor would tell them, well, go home and practice, you know, and they would encourage them, say say a few syllables like ba-ba-bi-bi, bi and then the person would learn. It was, it was a learned behavior. And mm-hmm. often people will imitate other people and they'll imitate the kind of sounds that they hear. So I'm not always sure that it's a psychological or spiritual experience. Uh, it may often be a sociological experience of, of a learned behavior. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, some Jews, when they pray, they will rock back and forth. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people may not do that if they've never been to a synagogue. They may not be the kind of behavior that people will exhibit when they're praying to shake back and forth. Um, you know, it, 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 it probably would be unusual for someone to naturally do that. But what happens is when someone goes to a synagogue and everyone around them or many people are rocking back and forth, it's interesting how many will start to join in and do the same thing. Mm. Um, so we live in a monkey see, monkey world do. We do, uh, yeah. Did I say monkey world? <laughs> we live in a monkey see, monkey do world. Whoa. And, uh, yeah, so, look, I, I'm, I'm not going to give a two-hour lecture on glossolalia tonight, but um, it's certainly not what Joel was speaking about. So I think we no, can move on. We can move on. So that's that one. Now, I want my money back, actually. You know what? <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to – because it, some of our listeners may have noticed, Michael, that we just jumped from Daniel to Joel – 
And what appears to have happened is that uh, poor old Bill is, is left out uh, Hosea chapter 11, which is, according to the New Testament, a very specific um, uh, prophecy that was fulfilled. And uh, we get that from Matthew, where it says uh, that, uh, of course, uh, uh, Jesus went to down into Egypt to avoid being killed by Herod. Uh, after Herod had died, then uh, the angel said, you know, it's all good now. And so they came out of Egypt, and this was done to, f- to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son, which is, of course, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Bill left it out! No, I think his quality control filters were set on very high that day. Okay. <laughs> Maybe. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, I congratulated him for leaving that one out because it's really a clunker. Um, but it was brave because Matthew insisted it was a fulfilled prophecy. Um, mm. So let's. I, I take my yarmulke off to Bill, and I would say that uh, you know keep up the good work because uh, leaving out that passage in Hosea was a uh, was an act of brilliance. <laughs> it was a wise move because uh, because just very briefly it begins Hosea chapter eleven verse one says when Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called uh, I called my son and so that's probably why Bill thought you know what I'm going to leave that one alone anyway we continue on and that which is on the list uh, next in line Micah chapter five verse two the, uh, the oh okay but you Bethlehem Ephrata though you are Little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Uh, Now, the corresponding verse, according to the list, is Matthew chapter 2. This is the story of the wise men of the East uh, that come to worship the baby Jesus and bring gifts and so on and so forth. Um, Michael, the old, well, the, the, the messianic prophecy fulfilled according to the list is born in Bethlehem. Okay, first of all, we should point out, you know, for people that have a Jewish Bible, that this is chapter 5, verse 1 in a Jewish Bible. In a Christian Bible, it's Matthew 5, 2. Um, this actually, like a 5, 2. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, yep. it's a passage which requires a little bit of um, fine-tuning, it's it's it doesn't read that easily, and it requires a little bit of insight in terms of knowing exactly what it's saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll try to do that. Um, what happens here is that the um, question is who is the prophet addressing? Is the prophet addressing a city, or is the prophet addressing uh, the house of David? Um, it seems that most Jewish commentaries understand that uh, the prophet here is addressing the house of David. And the reason is that it's going to be obviously going on. This is a messianic prophecy, by the way, so we have to ring Mm -hmm. ding, 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 ding. This is a messianic prophecy. The only question is, is it telling us the birthplace of the Messiah? So we're going to agree that this is describing this one who will come to rule over Israel. That's, by the way, a big clue that Jesus has not fulfilled this because Jesus never ruled over Israel. Mm. At best, um, you know, Christians are going to insist that he will return one day and do that, and we'll have to, at that point, shake their hands. But as far as we are concerned now, this is, again, a prophecy about the Messiah that has not yet been fulfilled, and mm-hmm. uh, including Jesus. Um, but in terms of understanding the verse, it is a little bit uh, slippery. So it seems that the, the prophet here is addressing the house of David. And the reason is because David would not have been considered uh, a prime candidate for being the progenitor of this future Messiah. What was the problem with David? So the problem with David is that he's a descendant of a Moabite. Um, it's interesting that uh, Ruth... The Moabite, mm-hmm. who converted to Judaism, when she left Moab and came to live in Israel, she came to live in Beit Lechem. So that was her city. And David as well, by the way, um, was from Beit Lechem. So these are people that are both tied into Beit Lechem. And according to the, the primary way this verse is understood, is that the prophet is really addressing the house of David and saying, you would be among the least significant among the thousands of families in Judah. Now, there really weren't thousands of cities in Judah. It wasn't that large of a province. Um, But there were thousands of families because Judah was the largest uh, group among all of the Jewish tribes. 
It was by far the largest tribe. So there were lots and lots of families. And what the prophet here is saying is that you, David, you would have been from the least significant, the least of the families of these thousands of families um, in Judah. Um, we, so we would never have expected that out of you would emerge the future ruler of Israel. And again, the, the thing that, that sort of put a big question mark over the head of David was that he descended from a Moabite. And we know from the Bible that there was a big problem with marrying a Moabite. Actually, the mm. Bible prescribed you were not allowed to marry a Moavi. And so the, the $64,000 question is, how was Boaz able to marry Ruth? Mm -hmm. So the, the oral law taught that the scripture specifically speaks about a Moavi, which is a male Moabite, oh. but it mm -hmm. wouldn't refer to a Moavia, which is a female mm -hmm. Moabite. But nonetheless... She comes from a very tainted uh, nation. Um, these are people that uh, were not nice to the Jewish people. So th there was sort of this cloud hanging over David because of his ancestry from Ruth, this convert from Moab. And so the prophet is saying, even though you were from you know, this background, which would have put you among the least significant, the least uh, sort of uh, noteworthy in the, in the, of, among the families of Judah, still out of you will emerge this one who will rule uh, Israel. That's one, the primary way of reading it. The other way of reading it's a little bit diff more difficult, but it could be that the prophet here is really addressing the city of Beit Lechem, and really for the same reason, meaning out of Beit Lechem, we know, emerged David, it was his city, and also it was the city of Ruth. So because... Um, it was, and by the way, it was a very small city. So again, because of its size and its stature, and because it was the city associated with this Moabite convert. So also, you would never have assumed that any greatness would come out of this city either. So there, there are two possible uh, addresses that that uh, you know the prophet might be looking at. You know, the mm -hmm. insignificance of of Bethlehem, the insignificance of the family of David. But really, they sort of intertwine because of David and Ruth's connection to um, the city of Bethlehem. And what the prophet is saying is that out of you, basically, out of you, David, who does come from Bethlehem, will be the one to rule over Israel. So the, what really is being said here is that the prophet is not telling us where the future Messiah is going to be born. The prophet is telling us that the future Messiah, this future ruler, will emerge out of the line of David, who came from Beit Lechem. Right. Now, one of the ways... Yeah, it's no secret. It's not a secret. It's, and by the way, it's completely in line with every other messianic prophecy. Meaning, if you go through all of the legitimate, genuine, bona fide, clear, overt uh, messianic prophecies, the one thing they have in common is they all tell you that the Messiah will be a descendant of King David. Um, the, the Bible never goes into that kind of unnecessary detail to let you know what city the Messiah is going to be born in. There's really no need for the Bible to reveal that. The only thing the Bible focuses on is who is going to be the progenitor of the Messiah, and it's David who was from the city of Beit Lechem. Now, one mm -hmm. of the signs, one of the clues that this uh, passage here in Micha, or Micah as people might pronounce it, is referring um, not so much to the city, but to the line of David, is that he goes on to say that this future ruler will emerge from someone, will emerge from uh, the origins, I'm sorry, the, the origins of this ruler will be from early times, from days of old. Um, which basically is saying that when the Messiah comes, uh, he's going to come from a line that goes back very, very far. Mm -hmm. It's not saying he's going to be coming out of a city that is a very old city. It's speaking about his the origins, meaning his his genealogy will be a very old genealogy because the Messiah is going to go all the way back to King David. And okay. so the fact that the end of the verse is sort of telling you that the genealogical uh, origins of this ruler will go back very far, that applies to his genealogy, not to a city. And uh, what's interesting is that when Matthew quotes, it's very interesting, when you look at Matthew itself, and Matthew quotes the verse from, Beit Le, from uh, Micha, 
he leaves this out. He actually changes it altogether. When Matthew quotes the verse in Micha, he says, And you, O Bethlehem, he leaves out the Ephrata part, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you, so far so good. And then he says, who will be the shepherd for my people. Now that's nowhere to be found in Micha itself. So he inserts that in the text, but he he leaves out where it says that the origins of this ruler will be from early times, from days of old. Um, so I, I think that's important, that, that uh, mm. the, the context really sort of makes it clear that uh, it's referring to the genealogical origins of this ruler, and that's why Matthew basically alters it, because it, the actual text in Micha really sabotages the claim that the, the passage here is telling you the birthplace of the Messiah himself. Now, I have one more little point, and and this is very, very speculative, but I'll tell you the truth. Even though Matthew and Luke both uh, insist that Jesus was from the city of Beit Lechem, I'm personally not convinced. Mm -hmm. Um, Meaning, I don't know. I mean, I have no idea. But I think there are reasons that a person could scratch their head and wonder. You know, it's interesting that no one in the, in the New Testament or even in Christian history refers to Jesus as Jesus the Bethlehemite. I mean, he's no. always called Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus of mm-hmm. Nazareth. And in the New Testament, you have a number of passages in the Gospel of John where people question whether or not Jesus could be the Messiah because he's from Nazareth. So, mm. for example, in John chapter 1, it says, Philip was of Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip find, found Nathanael, said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can there be any good thing coming out of Nazareth? Now, in John chapter 7, there's a passage starting with verse 41 where other people say about Jesus, He is the Messiah. So they, he's identified as the Messiah. But others said, wait a minute, shall the Messiah come out of the Galilee? Now again, Beit Lechem is not in the Galilee. Beit Lechem is in Judea. And, and Nazareth would be in the Galilee. Mm-hmm. So there's immediately in the, in the Gospel of John the questioning of whether Jesus could be the Messiah because he's from Nazareth hmm. and not from Bethlehem. So I wonder, and, and when you read, we're not going to do this now, but when you read the stories in Matthew and Luke, uh, about the um, st- Jesus' birth, the infancy narratives, mm. they really do a tremendous amount of gymnastics to you know, get Jesus uh, you know, to Nazareth from Beit Lechem or to get him from uh, Beit Lechem to Nazareth. There's a lot of strange mm. things that go on, and the two stories are totally inconsistent. And I just wonder if um, what's going on is that you know the gospel writers work with the assumption, I, I think the misassumption, that the Messiah has to be born in the city of Beit Lechem. And so if that's the case, they paint their narratives to make it... In order to accomplish that. Yeah, but I, I don't think they do a very good job, and I think there's plenty of well, reasons... They, they certainly didn't work together, did they, to, do, to, to accomplish the... <laughs> they, they, <laughs> to come to that end, that's They didn't sure. make the meeting at the same time. They didn't um, do that. <laughs> but I think there's a, there's a lot of internal uh, reasons in the Christian scriptures to just get you at least to scratch your head and wonder, well, is he really from, was he really born in Beit Lechem? It's not so clear to me. Um, but I'm not going to press the point because I don't have any specific evidence where he was born. Right. I don't no. have his birth certificate. Uh, no. <laughs> but um, I, I, just, I just wonder, that's all. And again, I just wanted to reiterate that the, the main point here, I believe, is that this is about the Messiah. It, it does speak about the one that will rule Israel, and it's just clearly, mm-hmm. wherever he was born and wherever the Messiah is going to be born, all we know is that Jesus was not the ruler of Israel. He didn't fulfill any of the prophecies about the Messiah in the Christ- Jewish scriptures. And so the birthplace is really, I think, of secondary importance. The next one has left me scratching my head, and maybe you can help. Uh, It references again Micah chapter 5, verse 2. We just read it. 
and it connects it with John chapter 8, verse 58, which says, Jesus said to them, assuredly, uh, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, and I have in capitals in the, in the New King James, I am. Now, I, I, the, the messianic prophecy fulfilled according to the list is from everlasting and in brackets pre-existence and i i suppose then they're taking that from everlasting which is the end of uh, uh micah chapter 5 verse 2 who's going forth so from old from everlasting and connecting it with this verse michael okay so again this is really micha chapter 5 verse 1 in the mm-hmm. christian bible it's verse 2 and really what you have here is a little bit of uh slippery translation the, the, the translation really is that the origins, the goings forth of this ruler are from early times and days of old. Mm. Um, everlasting, you know, gives the impression that it goes back from before time. And that's why the, the claim here is that this ruler pre-existed the world. Um, now, how do I know this? How do I know that it doesn't stretch all the way back to... Uh, you know, eternity from, you know, from going back as far as God exists. Um, Because we have other examples in the Hebrew Bible where these terms appear. It's not the only place where these expressions are used. And uh, I'll just share some of them. I mean, there are many, many places. In Isaiah chapter 23, verse 7, it's speaking about the city of Tarshish. It says, is this your joyous city whose antiquity is of ancient days. Her own feet shall carry her afar off to sojourn. No one's going to suggest that this city, you know, existed before the creation of the world. Hmm. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 4, it may be different than a Christian Bible. Um, it says, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Again, they, they weren't offering sacrifices in Jerusalem before the creation of the world. Um, the prophet Micha, chapter 7, verse 14, Feed my people with your rod, the flock of your heritage, which dwells solitarily in the wood in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Again, mm-hmm. no one's going to suggest this goes back to pre-existent times. In Jeremiah forty-six twenty-six, And I will deliver them into the hand of those that seek their lives, and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of his servants. And afterward, Egypt shall be inhabited as in the days of old. Again, it's very clear that these expressions are not indicating uh, pre-existence. Uh, Amos chapter 9, verse 11. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen. Oh, we're going to actually get to this one of these days. Mm. Um, in that, that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches of it and I'll raise up his ruins and I will build it as in the days of old. Um, back to Micha chapter 7 again, verse 20. You will perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham which has, you have sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Um, and then there's a passage in Isaiah chapter 51, verses 9 to 10, uh, that says the same thing. So, and there are other places. So it, it's just simply um, a misreading of Micha to say that this ruler uh, is someone that existed before the beginning of time. Um, what it's really saying is that, again, the origins of the Messiah, when he comes, will be going back a long time, meaning all the way to David, which is a long time before the Messiah will be here. And in addition, according to rabbinic teaching, the idea of the Messiah goes back to the beginning of time itself, meaning that mm-hmm. the rabbis say in the Talmud that before God created the world, the idea of the Messiah was already in his mind. Um, but there's no indication here that the being of the Messiah himself is someone who exists before the, the beginning of time. Now, to get to what was your conundrum, oh, by the way, so let, let's look at the um, proof text from John. Um, there's no proof. I mean, the claim is, the claim is that Jesus is preexistent. Um, mm-hmm. But there's no proof that he is, meaning all you have is the claim from the Christian Bible. Um, there's no way of ascertaining that. There's no way of verifying that. Um, you've got to take them at their word. And because there's no proof that Jesus is preexistent, it's sort of a meaningless prophecy, meaning if the whole point of Micha chapter 5 here is that the Messiah will be someone who has preexisted the existence of the world, there's no way of knowing whether that's true about Jesus. So what's the point of the prophecy? 
Um, yeah, good point. But in John, it's interesting that it's a really awkward passage that John uses um, because all it's saying is that Jesus allegedly is born before Abraham. Um, that wouldn't make him uh, from everlasting. It wouldn't make him pre-existent to the to the world. Um, it's sort of a leap to say that someone born before Abraham, you know, is an eternal being. But mm. the, the main problem is that the Christians get their, uh, I think, their their proof here. I think they, the 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 key is what Jesus says before Abraham was I am, and they capitalize it. Now mm. it's very clear that what they're sort of uh, riffing back to is Exodus chapter three verse fourteen where Moses asks God, you know, if the Jewish people ask me, who are you? Who is this God? You know, what's God's name? What am I going to tell them? And God says mm. to Moses, my name, it's I will be what I will be. Eheyeh asher eheyeh. Mm-hmm. I will be what I will be. Christians often mistranslate this to read, I am what I am. Sounds more like Popeye. Than Popeye, the sailor man, yeah. <laughs> can of spinach. So... Um, the f- first of all, so, so God didn't say I am, and even if God did say I am, by the way, just because someone else says I am doesn't mean they're God. I say the words I am probably three or four times a week. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's just a, the, the passage in John 8 is just very, very awkward because it doesn't really make any sense. It doesn't prove that Jesus, I mean, they're, they're, they're using this as the proof that Jesus is preexistent, but it simply doesn't prove what they're trying to prove. Mm, fair enough. There we are. We jump to Haggai, chapter 2, verse 6 to 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Corresponding verse according to the list is uh, in the New Testament is Luke chapter 2, verses 27 to 32. It says, So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the, the, the child Jesus... To do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Uh, I've also got Matthew chapter 12, verse 4 and 8. It says how he entered the house of, uh, of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that the priests or that the Sabbath that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what his what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the son of man is lord even of the sabbath now the uh, the prophecy fulfilled according to the list is messiah would make the glory of the second temple greater than the old michael this is a very juicy one all right i, I will enjoy this okay <laughs> <laughs> i have my my lobster bib on <laughs> uh, <laughs> um so, first of all, this is not a messianic prophecy. Let's start off by making that clear. This, this mm-hmm. passage in Haggai is not a, a prophecy about the Messiah. Now, what it's saying is not that uh, the Messiah is going to make the second temple greater. It's not being said here. What Haggai is, is predicting is that the kavod, the honor, really it's probably better translated as honor. You could say glory. Um, that the kavod, the honor and the glory of the second temple will be greater than the first temple. That's all that Haggai is saying. There's not any Mm -hmm. mention uh, that the Messiah is going to be the one to do this, or his presence will be making it greater. Um, The the Talmud actually debates what this might mean. Um, According to Rav, one of the great teachers, 
um, it refers to the size of the structures. The second temple was 40 cubits high, and the first temple was only 30 cubits high. So that might be what it means that the second temple will be greater. Its, its glory and honor will be greater because it will be bigger. According to Shmuel, another great sage who often argued with Rav, um, the second temple lasted longer, meaning the first temple stood for 410 years, and the second temple stood for 420 years. So that's what the, the rabbis of the Talmud suggest. Actually, it's, I think if you go to the context of the, verse, of the passage itself, it tells you, if you go back to verse 7 here in Haggai, Verse 7 explains that what will be the glory of this second temple? It actually spells it out. It says the glory filling the second temple is going to be the numerous gifts of gold and silver that the nations will bring to the second temple. It doesn't say that what will be the great glory of the second temple will be the arrival of the Messiah in that temple. Mm -hmm. um, it, it says that it very clearly, straight out, that the glory will be the numerous gifts that the nations will bring, um, all the gold and silver. Mm -hmm. um, it's important to point out, by the way, that Haggai uh, here describes the glory and the honor, the kavod, is to what? It's to the building, it's to the structure of this temple itself. What's interesting is that in the Christian scriptures, Jesus doesn't really bring any honor to this building. Matter of fact, there are two passages where his disciples start to sort of uh, get all excited about how beautiful the temple is. They show him, you know, how glorious it is, how beautiful it looks. You'll find this in Mark chapter 13, verse 1, and Luke chapter 21, verse 5. And in both cases, Jesus sort of poo poos what they're saying, he sort of blows it away what they're saying, and he says, Don't get so excited, this is going to all be destroyed anyway. So, you know, where Haggai speaks about, you know, great glory and honor coming to this place, it's certainly not something Jesus is at all connected to. He basically, anytime it's brought up how beautiful the temple is, he negates that. Um, now, what does this mean from a Christian perspective? How does somehow the presence of Jesus bring glory and honor to the second temple? So, the Christian interpretation is basically the following. Their, their assumption is that because Jesus was God, so therefore his visit to the second temple made it greater than the first temple. Meaning that they're, they're saying that what do you have that's different between the first temple and the second temple? They're saying Jesus came to the second temple. And because they say Jesus is God, so they say the presence of God visited the second temple, and that's why it was more glorious and honorable. That's the uh, assumption of this Christian uh, assertion here. What is the problem with this? The problem is very simple. If you go back to the uh, Tanakh, to the Hebrew Scriptures, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 11, and 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13, actually, I'm sorry, verses 1 to 3, so in Second Chronicles 7, 1 to 3, it says that right after Solomon constructed the first temple, fire came down and the, the temple was filled with a cloud, which everyone understood to be the glory of God. Mm -hmm. So at the first temple, it was clear to everyone that God's presence was there. The Bible describes in very dramatic ways in which obviously the fire is not God and the cloud is not God, but clearly to the people it represented the presence of mm -hmm. God in the temple. And if you read those passages in First Kings and Second Chronicles, it's very clear that that's exactly what the people experienced. However, when Jesus walked into the temple, there wasn't that kind of universal acknowledgement that, look, everybody, God is here. I'm sure people didn't drop their falafel and look up and see, look, Jesus is walking around the temple mount. People saw a guy walking. Of and no one, no one equated Jesus walking in the temple back then with God. So basically what you see is that at the time of the first temple, God made his appearance very dramatic and very overt and obvious to everyone, whereas that didn't take place in the same way at the second temple. Um, so I think this is a very, very weak prophecy. I mean, I think that when you go through this carefully – 
it doesn't really stand at all. It's very easily um, sort of, uh, you know, it's like one of these cotton candy prophecies. When you bite into it, it disappears. Now, the other problem is that the passages you read in both Matthew and Luke simply don't demonstrate at all. the, The passages do not have anything to do with um, Jesus bringing more glory into the second temple. Um, They don't indicate or prove that the glory of the second temple was greater somehow than the first temple because Jesus was there. Um, So this is just a losing proposition all over the place. Isn't it? Very odd. We're not finished with uh, the book of Haggai. In, In fact, in the very same chapter, Uh, verse 23. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Corresponding verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. We've done this before, haven't we? And after they were uh, brought to Babylon, Yekoniah, or or Jeconia, begot Sheltiel, and Sheltiel begot Zerubbabel, Michael. Oh, oh, well, I should say... <laughs> And it, and the uh, the prophecy is is that he shall be a descendant of Zerubbabel. Wouldn't that I? But okay, come on. Take your riddle in there, Jono. <laughs> <laughs> what are we supposed to uh, do? With this? You have to be patient, and you have to have compassion. I think. <laughs> um, first of all, you know the the list maker here um, says that it's 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 that we're learning about it's it's speaking about a descendant of Zerubbabel. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the passage is not speaking about any descendant of Zerubbabel. The passage okay. in Haggai is speaking about Zerubbabel bechvodo uh, uvatzmo. You know him all by himself. There's not no reference to any of his descendants or a descendant of him. Okay. It's speaking simply about Zerubbabel. And by the way, my uh, very um, hyperactive um, and super enthusiastic open Bible <laughs> does not, not tag this as a messianic prophecy. Um, there's nothing at all here in Haggai that says that the Messiah has to be a descendant of Zerubbabel. It's just simply not in the text. Um, now, according to the Gospels, Jesus is not a descendant of Zerubbabel, <laughs> even though uh, what it seems is that Joseph the husband of Mary, is a descendant of Zerubbabel. We've discussed this in the past. You know, the claim is that Jesus didn't have an earthly father, and so there really is no connection anyway between Jesus and Mm. Zerubbabel. And and the bottom line, we'll put it this way. I would say, basically, so what? Meaning that if what the list maker is saying is that the descendant, the Messiah is going to be a descendant of Zerubbabel. It's not entirely clear, but even if that was true, even if that was true, so what? You know, the the Bible says a million times the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David, right? It would be the same prophecy, basically. Hmm. Um, you know, the two problems are number one: we have no proof that Jesus was a descendant of these people, and actually, the Christian scriptures give us reason to question whether he was. And secondly, because you're a descendant of David or Zerubbabel, does not mean you're the Messiah. You know, just as an example, let's say there are only three prophecies in the Bible about the Messiah. Uh, Let's say the Bible tells us the Messiah will bring peace to the world, the Messiah will manage to get the entire world to believe in God, the Messiah will gather all the tribes of Israel back to their land, and the Messiah is going to be a descendant of King David. Now, obviously, only one person is going to fulfill those very dramatic prophecies of bringing about world peace and universal belief in God and the gathering of the Jewish exiles. Uh, So anyone that does that is automatically the Messiah. But there's not just one descendant of David. David has thousands and thousands of descendants. Of course. So it's not really something that makes you the Messiah because you're a descendant of King David. It's simply a prerequisite. The Messiah, one of the prerequisites, he's got to be Jewish, he's got to be a guy, he's got to be from the line of mm. Judah, has a defense sent from David. That, that, that's wonderful. But those things do not make someone the Messiah. They're simply uh, requirements. You know, it's like, for example, for someone to be a doctor, they have to pass their medical exams. 
um, one of the prerequisites is you have had to have gotten a high school diploma and a you know a college diploma. But just being a high school graduate doesn't make you a doctor. Um, the same thing here. So uh, this again is, I, th- I would say humbly, an extremely weak uh, prophecy. There's the whole thing with Yechoniah as well. We dealt with that much earlier on. Uh, now, deja vu <laughs> is the feeling of having you know done this before. Here, here we are again. The next one on the list is Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. We've already read it out. We've got the same uh, uh, cross-references here and the same uh, prophecy, uh, alleged prophecy, the promise of the Spirit. I think we've done that one. This is why, Bill, you could have done better. We could have taken this one out. Uh, there's, one, there's one difference, by the way. Is there a difference? Oh, we've got Romans chapter 10. Exactly. Romans 10, Ooh, well, 13 comes over here. It says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's right straight out of Joel. Well, you know, what I would say is that that is totally irrelevant uh, to this idea of the promise of the Spirit. Of the Spirit. Um, but you're right. We, we basically covered this already back in number 256. Um, so this is what I would call double dipping. This is double dipping. So we're moving on. Amos chapter 8, verse 9. It says, And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. Ah, case closed. <laughs> chapter uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 29 is the corresponding verse in the New Testament. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken acts chapter 2 verse 20 the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood there's been a lot of carry on about that lately uh before the coming of the great and awesome day of the lord revelation chapter 6 verse 12 i looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood the the messianic prophecy fulfilled michael is that the sun would be darkened. Uh, I'm still not going to convert because of this. You're not not going to church on Sunday. No. I mean, I I did a little bit of poking into Christian Christian, uh, scholarship here, Christian commentaries, Mm -hmm. not just... You know the kind of liberal Christians that the you know church often derides, but um, you know nice, respected fundamentalist evangelical commentaries. Um, my open Bible, which you know sees the Messiah almost in every verse of the Bible, does not award this a star. Does not see this mm. passage as a messianic prophecy. My MacArthur Study Bible, one of the great you know champions of the evangelical. Christian world today, um, he does not see this as a messianic prophecy. My Nelson study Bible doesn't see this as a messianic prophecy. The New Interpreter study Bible, that might be a little bit liberal, doesn't see this as a messianic Mm. prophecy. And my very, very religious NIV study Bible doesn't see this as a messianic prophecy. And I'm sure there are many, many others that just sort of would would yawn um, when this is, is brought as a messianic proof text. Um, one of the problems is that the context here is not it's not really a happy passage in Amos. We will often think that the you know, coming of the Messiah is a good thing. You know, it's, as the old TV show would be happy days. Mm. Um, this is not happy days being spoken about in this passage in Amos. It's actually uh, a passage speaking about very bad things that are going to happen. Mm-hmm. So what Rashi explains, and I think he does a very good job here, is that, and we'll see why, that this is not to be taken literally, as the New Testament does. Um, it's not speaking about the actual sun being darkened. It's a metaphor, because it's really speaking about the sun being darkened in the middle of the day, right? That's when it should be the brightest. Mm-hmm. So Rashi says it's a metaphor for the sudden disaster during prosperous times, meaning that things are going to turn around badly for us. And when you read the entire passage, the context makes it very clear that these expressions are not to be taken literally. Um, so the darkening of God's, what it re- refers to really, is the darkening of God's providence by hiding his presence from us. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, mm. 32, um, I think verse 20, 32 verse 20, God says, I will surely hide my face from you at that day. 
And when God hides his face, his providence is removed from us, and we're left mm. to the forces of the world. Yep. And things could go very bad for the Jewish people when God is not hope. overtly protecting mm. us. And so what it's saying here really is that God's punishments will darken our lives. It's not speaking about you know, the, an actual um, blackout or you know, the darkening of the sun itself. One more thing I wanted to point out. You know, you read from Matthew, Acts, and Revelation. Mm. So what's interesting is that those citations are really all over the place um, in terms of how they apply the, the passage from Amos. Um, Matthew is uh, really trying to connect the passage in Amos here to the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, but in the book of Acts, it's tied into the experience of Pentecost. It has nothing to do mm-hmm. with the coming of the Messiah, per se. And in Revelation, again, it's a future vision. It doesn't have an, hasn't even happened mm. yet. Um, so, so there's an inconsistency as to the application of uh, the fulfillment of this exactly. uh, so-called messianic prophecy. Yeah. Right, and totally disconnected from the context in the book of, book of Amos. Mm. Not okay, let's do one more tonight. Okay, this is, well, while we're still in Amos, because it does, while it's all bad news, it does turn around in uh, Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12, thank goodness, it says... On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does these things. And it continues on, and it's, uh, it, it's such a relief to, to read the final verses of Amos but the verse, uh, the, the list quotes those verses. It uh, joins those verses with Acts chapter 15, verse 15 to 18, uh, which basically just quotes what I've just read. Uh, the messianic prophecy fulfilled, according to the list, is the restoration of the temple. Michael. So, I, I, most uh, Jewish commentaries see this passage as speaking about the future restoration of the temple. Um, that is really prophesied many times in the uh, Tanakh, in the Hebrew Scriptures. You have many, many places where uh, the prophets tell us that one of the uh, features, one of the things that will take place during the messianic uh, utopia is that not just that the Jewish people will return to their land and to their God, but we're going to have our temple rebuilt and the resumption of the sacrificial services. So that's how this passage in Amos is understood by, I would say, the, the most Jewish commentaries. Um, and also it mentions, by the way, that Israel is going to conquer Edom at this time. Um, mm-hmm. didn't happen at the time of Jesus. Um, now, interestingly, the open Bible that I have does not see this as a messianic prophecy, which I find to be strange, because it is a genuine messianic prophecy. Um, the reality is that it was not fulfilled at the time of Jesus. The, the temple was not restored or rebuilt mm. at the time of Jesus. They certainly didn't conquer Edom at that time. Mm. Um, and if I remember correctly, I, I read this yesterday, the passage in the book of Acts is not really talking about the rebuilding and the restoring of the temple. It's really, I think, speaking there in Acts, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, about Gentiles being converted. Uh, conflict over circumcision. This is the, uh, the Jerusalem Council. This is the context of, uh, of these words or this citation. So, yes, it's, it's talking about the Gentiles joining into the church. Right. So, um, this has nothing to do with the restoration of the temple. And yet, the, the confirmation passages, passage that's quoted here in the list is Acts 15, which has nothing to do with the rebuilding of the temple. By the way, uh, when Acts quotes this or tries to quote this passage from Amos, um, it's not really taken from the Masoretic text. Um, They're really taking this from the Septuagint, which really is very much different from the passage itself in Amos. Um, So there's a bit of a discrepancy between the passage quoted by uh, the book of Acts and the actual passage in Amos. But at the end of the day, This is another one of those passages which I would say is a a legitimate um, prophecy that is about not the Messiah himself, but about Messianic Age age and Mm -hmm. what it's describing simply did not take place in the time of Jesus. Um, So the best that Christians will have to offer us 
is to say that the third temple is going to be restored by Jesus, but we'll have to both, all of us, wait uh, for that. But it certainly is not a fulfilled prophecy, and that's the point of this list of 365 prophecies allegedly fulfilled by Jesus. Uh, This has not been fulfilled. Um, So I think we could put this one to rest. We can put this one to rest. Now, if you have the time, Rabbi Skoback, we can do one more. That would be Habakkuk, and that would leave the next program for us to begin in Zechariah. Oh, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do that. Let's just do one more. That that way, uh, I mean, there's there's quite a lot uh, on the list in regards to Zechariah, and it may take a couple, if not three, uh, programs to get through them all. But there's one more in the Minor Prophets, and it is uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There it is. And uh, the corresponding verse according to the list, Romans chapter 11, verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness in Jacob, which if, if I'm correct, I think that's actually a quote from Isaiah chapter 59. That's correct. Uh, it is? Okay, well, that's all right. Well, they're connecting it with Habakkuk. Anyhow, don't know about that, Bill. Revelation chapter 21, verse 23 to 26 is also cited. Uh, the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, uh, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth, sh- earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no light there, and uh, there, sh- there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. The messianic prophecy fulfilled, uh, according to the list, is earth filled with knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Michael. Well, when I read this one, I scratched my head and I said, what in the world was this list maker thinking about when he put this here? Um, I, for the life of me, I, I just couldn't get it. Um, I think, by the way, that this passage in Habakkuk appears earlier in Isaiah. If I'm not mistaken, um, it's pretty much, um, I may be wrong, but I think it, we do find it somewhere in Isaiah where it speaks about, um, well, I think it's Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9. Um, it speaks about, it's pretty similar, it says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the water covering the seabed. Um, so I think it's pretty much the sa- similar prophecy. I think we actually have discussed it before from Isaiah uh, earlier in the list. Um, this is, you know, we're going to ring the bell, uh, genuine, absolutely genuine prophecy about the Messianic Age, no question about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's confirmed by many, many other prophecies. You have, um, you know, really dozens of passages in the Hebrew Bible which tell us that one of the key central important features of the messianic age will be the universal acceptance and knowledge of God. Um, and that's what we're being told here. And interestingly enough, this hasn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. So like all of the other, whenever we hit a genuine messianic prophecy on our list, we've seen that none of them have yet taken place. Um, so this passage has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus, with Yeshua, because it just, again, it's a prophecy for which we await its fulfillment. And you can sort of see that, by the way, in these two uh, corroborating passages that are quoted from Romans and from Revelation, because these are not really fulfillment quotes. Even in Romans, it said, and all of Israel will be saved. Um, it, you know, from the time that Romans was written, it was something that had not yet happened. Romans was predicting it. And Revelation as well is speaking about something that has not yet happened. So they're really, I'm going to coin an expression here, they're not fulfillment quotes, they're expectation quotes. Um, These passages in, in Romans and Revelation are passages hoping and expecting that something is going to happen at some future date. But again, they're not able to show in the Christian Bible any passage which shows that, indeed, the whole world has been filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. It hasn't mm. happened yet. Mm. We're still waiting for that to happen. Jeremiah says, 
uh, in chapter 31 that, you know, in That's those right. days, no one's going to have to teach anyone to know the Lord because they're all going to know me, from the least of them mm-hmm. to the greatest of them. The fact that we still have missionaries running around telling people to believe in God and we have other people teaching about God is the proof positive that not everyone in the world yet knows about God. And mm-hmm. so it's very clear that all of these passages that describe, I mean, we're, we're hoping it happens very, very soon, but uh, it has yeah. not unfortunately happened yet. While we're there, I'm, I'm just going to read this because I want to read verse 35 too because that kind of, I think, is relevant to the next verse that I quote from the New Testament. From 34 in Jeremiah chapter 31, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Verse 35, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day. The ordinances of the moon and stars for light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roll, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth search beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. What is that saying? Well, it's saying two things, really. It's saying, number one, that God's people, Israel, are an eternal people. Mm-hmm. It's also comparing the ordinances of God, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the mitzvot, the commandments and the teachings of the Torah, to the uh, heavenly constellations, and that, as, you know, that, that basically they're all going to be uh, in existence forever. And mm-hmm. it's interesting because that's exactly what that passage of Jeremiah is speaking about. It's saying that uh, in the future, when this amazing prophecy takes place, God is going to put his Torah in our hearts. And um, the promise is that when we have the Torah in our heart, we will all be faithful to observe the Torah. And that is a prophecy that comes up many times. You find it in chapter 11 of Ezekiel and chapter 36 of Ezekiel, which speaks about God taking our stony hearts and turning them into hearts of flesh. Mm-hmm. And Ezekiel spells it out so that we will all keep the commandments of the Torah. Yep. And so the, the passage here emphasizes that these commandments will not will never be nullified or evaporate. There's no expiration date. And mm. they'll, they'll exist as long as the heavenly bodies, the stars and the sun and the moon exist. That's right. There uh, it is. And yet in Revelation, in the very next one, it says the city had no need for the sun or the moon to shine in it for the glory of God eliminated it and the Lamb is its light and uh, and so on and so forth which seems to be uh, conflicting with these verses would you would you agree? It might be um, mm. I, I find it very difficult to understand the book of Revelation <laughs> yeah um, the bad bits of times yeah yeah I I, I, I need to uh, go back to the 60s and you know go to, right. some kind of, <laughs> go to a party but it's it's not an easy book to penetrate it really isn't that's fair enough well, that is it. I think I think we're done. Uh, next week, we're going to be in the book of Zechariah. And oh, my goodness, there really is quite a lot there. And we're going to work our way through it. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to do it in one no program. No way. No way. No way. So there's two or three programs coming yes, yes. in the book of Zechariah. So thank you, my friend. Rabbi Michael Skoback of JewsforJudaism.ca is the website. Jews for Judaism in Canada. Thank you for coming back on the program. Such a pleasure. And I wish you and everyone else a wonderful wonderful Shabbat. Thank you, my friend. It's uh, always wonderful having you. And until next time, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shabbat.